So I am John Allen Gay, the executive director of the John Quincy Adams Society. Uh, while folks are flowing in, welcome, welcome. Uh, just to have a few events that I'm going to drop in the chat. These are our upcoming events over the next three weeks. Uh, next week, Thursday, we will have uh, Eugene Goltz on economic effects of U.S. grand strategy. Uh, the week after that, we will have uh, Lauren Woods, who recently came out of the State Department on America's security exports, security assistance, arms sales, and foreign military training. And then uh, the week after that, the 24th, we are going to be looking at the other side of U.S. assistance, uh, very provocative work by uh, Jessica Trisco Darden, arguing that economic aid uh, can actually be a major uh, driver of human rights abuses, even more so than military aid. It's a, a fascinating and controversial thesis, but uh, that's not why you're here tonight. So let me hand it over to the president of our co-host chapter tonight at the University of Notre Dame, Tatiana Pernetti. Good evening, everyone, and thank you all for coming. My name is Tatiana Pernetti, and I am a senior at the University of Notre Dame and a fellow at the Notre Dame International Security Center. Um, and we are very happy to be co-hosting this event this evening. Barry Arposen is a Ford International Professor of Political Science at MIT and Director Emeritus of the MIT Security Studies Program. He has written three books, Restraint, A New Foundation for U.S. Grand Strategy, Inadvertent Escalation, Conventional War and Nuclear Risks, uh, John is showing you his copies right there, so you should go and buy them. And lastly, the source of military doctrine. He is also the author of numerous articles, including The Case for Restraint and Command of the Commons, The Military Foundation of U.S. Hegemony. He has a Ph.D. from the University of California, Berkeley. So thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Posen. And I will start us off with the first question. Your recent article, Europe Can Defend Itself, sparked a big conversation about whether Europe could hold off a major Russian attack without U.S. assistance. What motivated you to write the article and what's the key to your argument? Well, I think I was motivated. I, I had a, what you might call a, a macro motivation and, and, and sort of a micro motivation. Uh, the macro motivation, as everyone knows, I, you know, I, I have this book, restraint. And I argue that the United States can afford to do less in the world. And others are now capable of doing more. And uh, I re recommended in the book that the the candidate for change in the, in the sort of relationship between U.S. security guarantees and, 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 and allies and clients, the best candidate for change is Europe, because the Europeans are the richest and uh, the most capable uh, and uh, the threat they face from Russia is one that is not large enough that they cannot manage it. Right? So I say that in the in the in the book, and I talk about a few large variables like GDP and population and whatnot uh, to, to 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 basically make that point. Uh, and I had had in the back of my mind uh, for several years uh, the idea of delving more deeply into that question, looking you know, working on European security issues again, in part because of that argument in part, because early in my career, I worked a lot on NATO Warsaw Pact competition, and I got to know the military aspects of that region you know, pretty well. So I had, I had the idea in my head that I would start working on that um, you know, in a more focused way, you know, kind of a restraint in one part of the world. And I began reading 
a lot of the literature that was around, and I ran into this piece that the uh, uh, international team at the International Institute of Strategic Studies had done, uh, arguing that, uh, oh, it's hopeless, um, and uh, making the case that Europeans had to buy really quite an enormous uh, parking lot full of military equipment uh, to be able to cope with the Russians. And I said, eh, this doesn't seem right. I, I know the forces a little bit, uh, and I know the terrain a little bit. Uh, it just doesn't feel right, right? So I delved more deeply into their analysis, and I began to find assumption after assumption in the analysis that I found to be dubious. I said, well, what assumptions would you make? You know, Barry, if you were running Europe, the Americans were gone. And I began running through my own analytic process for a strategy for Europe. And then I tried to generate a military contingency that was consistent with that. <clears throat> and then, just to be, uh, I guess, mischievous, I used the same analytic techniques that the ISS used in their analysis, in my analysis, so that the techniques would not be at issue, right? So, what? The, 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 you can challenge the strategic scenario that I lay out, but you can't really, they can't really challenge my, my techniques because I use their technique, right? Uh, and, you know, when I did my analysis on my scenario, I said, look, these people have what it takes to be able to make a fight of it. Now, I should say that, you know, their analysis and, and my analysis are both kind of uh, their first order attempts to analyze the problem. These are not the end of an argument, neither their argument nor mine. We are, they're not the end, right? It's a first cut that's designed to ask big lumpy questions of, do you have the major items of force to make, to, to be able to compete with the Russians, right? And in their case, they wanted to, they had a rather ambitious counteroffensive strategy. In my case, I had a less ambitious defensive strategy. Uh, but, but, but neither of us have got a really high resolution look at how the war would go. That takes a deeper analysis, a bigger team, more time, uh, more attention to each of the pieces of the analysis, a separate air analysis, a separate ground analysis, logistics analysis. You know, there's all kinds of fancy stuff you could do. And we used to do this in the NATO Warsaw Pact world, you know, sky's the limit, lots of contractor money, many analyses done, secret, not secret. And that's the way you approach something like this. But the, in general, military analysis of new problems in Europe much less of it than there used to be in the NATO PAC competition. There's some out there, and some of it's very interesting and, and helpful, but we're, I think we're just at the beginnings of this, of this problem, right? But their analysis had a particular policy implication, and it was one that I find obviously at variance with mine, but that, that, that attracted my attention, plus what I saw to be the, the pyramiding of pessimistic assumptions on top of pessimistic assumptions in the analysis that they did, which produces a pretty unhappy ending uh, uh, in terms of uh, missing forces and therefore how much money Europeans need to spend and how much equipment they need to buy and how many years it's going to take for them to be competitive. Sorry, long-winded answer, but you asked a complicated question. So to, to follow up on that, and by the way, folks, to join in at the conversation, there's a Q&A feature right at the bottom of your screen, uh, and we'll be pulling questions from that. Uh, but uh, Dr. Posen, how does your view of European security, you know, that this environment is less, uh, less dangerous for the countries there, uh, and in particular for U.S. interests there, uh, than a lot of folks think. How does that fit into your broader analysis of what American grand strategy ought to be in a more global context? Well, you know, when I, when I wrote Restraint, I, I wrote it in 
partly in reaction to what I saw as the consensus grand strategy in the United States. And that grand strategy is, was rather um, expansive in terms of its interests and its commitments, uh, and very ambitious politically in terms of both external relations among countries and as well as their internal constitution. So it, it was a grand strategy without too many priorities. And as we saw, you know, in the post-Cold War world, a strategy that got us into lots of wars, some little, some medium-sized, fortunately no gigantic ones, right? And the, the list didn't end. And the strategy was meant to create a somehow a more stable and peaceful world. And suddenly we find ourselves talking about challenges from great power. So the strategy was failing on the face of it, right? So I said, my view was let's try and come up with a strategy that's that's less ambitious, more prioritized, and more focused on the main reason why states have to have security policies, which is to defend themselves in a harsh world, right? In a world where anybody can do it, anybody else with their own power lets them, right? Each state has to figure out some way to look after itself. And the, the, but but we, we, we in our strategy had gone well beyond that. We weren't just looking after ourselves. We were looking after others. We were trying to change the internal politics of others. We were trying to change the world. Lots of things we were trying to do. So I said, well, let's try and do a zero-based accounting of what America's really real vital interests are and what are the major threats to those interests. And then let's draw up some priorities and see what does it take to, to do this, right? What does it take to pursue those those problems. And, you know, I walked through a whole analysis where I said, look, the United States is inherently very secure. And there's lots of reasons why we're secure. You know, we've got a pretty good sized economy. We've got a nice continent, lots of resources. We've got big oceans to the left and right, the relatively pliant neighbors to the north and south, nuclear deterrent, which makes us really impossible to conquer. Uh, we have many, many cards. And it's very hard to hurt the United States, it's very hard to come at us, right? So there's a few things that we need to worry about, right? Uh, and it's even once you agree that you worry about those things, you want to be sure that the solutions to those worries are not bigger than the worries themselves, right? So you know what are the worries? Uh, uh, one worry I had was nuclear weapons falling into the hands of non-state actors, right? Uh, that's basically a diplomatic and technical and intelligence cooperation problem. One problem I had was, you know, you can use whatever term you want, but, you know, 9-11 taught us a little something. Every now and then a group's going to come along that, you know, you don't understand where they're coming from, but they have really big ambitions. They're willing to use really violent means, and they're not really tied to politics in one area. They have some larger scope, and because America's a big power, they're going to focus on us. So we have to watch out for people like that. That's basically an intelligence problem, too. Some people want to tell you that's a intervene everywhere to close their bases, you know, eliminate their base areas problem. But that's a lot of world, right? And it's so the solution doesn't fit the problem. And then the final problem is the old one. And this one, I think, requires still requires a lot of debate. But as a first cut, right, uh, you, you don't really you don't. The United, it's not going to be comfortable for the United States if one empire comes to dominate one end of Eurasia or the other one empire, right? Because that's going to agglomerate a lot of power. It's not going to have any threats close to home. Its gaze will start coming across the oceans and that gaze may fall on us. And I don't think they can conquer us. I don't think they can coerce us, but I think they can change our lives. And it's a risk that we're rich enough 
that we don't have to run it. We're capable enough we don't have to run it. <clears throat> and what that means is preventing a hegemon at either end of Eurasia. If there is a candidate hegemon, and if no one in Eurasia could do anything about it, right? Now, to the extent that there is a candidate hegemon in Eurasia, it's on the right side looking at a standard map, which is to say it's China in, in Asia, right? And, and, it, and, and there aren't probably enough powers with enough capacity to be able to balance China. It's, it's close, right? But it's not perfect. Right? So the United States might have to put its shoulder to the wheel there in a balancing effort. Doesn't mean it has to look like the second coming of the Cold War. Doesn't mean we don't have to be conscious of, of the division of labor and of fairness and, and everybody putting in something to the common defense. But that may be the place where America actually has to lead. There's no choice. The other end of Eurasia, a little different. You know, Russia is not the Soviet Union. Uh, and the Europeans of today are not the Europeans of 1949, right? Uh, however you count, you know, Europe, uh, the, the European members of NATO or the European Union plus Britain, it's out, but in the strategic sense has some interest. Uh, they vastly outpopulate Russia. They vastly out-resource Russia economically. Uh, on the average, I think their technology is as good, if not better. Uh, and certainly their, mil their military technology on the average is good, not better. There are two nuclear weapon states in Europe, Britain and France, right? Uh, so I look at the situation and say, gee, you know, America has to set priorities rigorously. We have problems everywhere. We have problems at home. Um, military power isn't free. Uh, this end of Eurasia should be able to take care of itself. We've held them up for a long time. We help them restore their power. We help basically contain the Soviet Union and squeeze it till it split in half. I mean, we did a lot to fix that part of the world and it's in pretty good shape. And these people ought to be able to manage the problem for themselves. That's what I argue in restraint, right? And that, that's really the, the motivation here. You know, can these people, why, why can't these people handle this for themselves, right? And I don't think it's a great risk for the United States to bet that they will. Because on the whole, states balance against threats. It often takes them a long time to do it. You know, they'll they'll pass the buck and hem and haw. But in the end, when the wolf's at the door, they'll look after themselves. Uh, and I think in Europe, you're not running a humongous risk to put the principal burden of European security on Europeans. Great answer to that. Um, so we have um, some questions from the audience now. So this is from Evan. Do the Europeans themselves make an accurate assessment of the threat Russia poses to the EU? Um, well, there's there are several aspects of the concept of threat. There's there's capability and there's intent, right? As far as I can tell, the European Union understands that Russia does not wish them well, right? And Britain, which is no longer in the European Union, knows firsthand that the Russians do not wish them well, right? They understand that the Russians are a security problem. They also understand that the Russians don't have many cards to play. They're not going to 
win a, a, a popularity contest. The Russians have sharp elbows. They rely a lot on their military power and on their intelligence capabilities and their ability to make propaganda. I mean, it, it, it's not a pretty story the way Russia tries to gain influence in Europe. And many Europeans are alive to it now. They might not have been five years ago or four years ago or three years ago, but they're, they're alive to the idea that Russia has malign intent. Now, what is it, the true extent of Russia's malign intent? Hard to say. Right. And then we look at Russia's capability and the Europeans are pretty much live to that. In other words, when you know, after the Russians took Crimea, the Europeans scratched their heads and actually they did what they usually do, which is they came and whined to us. And we agreed to do a little something extra about our forces in Europe. But gradually they became willing to do a little something extra, too. And that's why there are small forces in uh, in, in the Baltic states. Uh, and uh, that's why, to some extent, their defense funding has gone up a little bit. And that's why they're taking the defense effort a little more seriously, right? Are they really where they should be, where they need to be? This is a, a big political, this is a political military argument. We could have that argument. Uh, I think they're not quite where they should be if they assume that we're leaving. If they assume that we're staying, then they're probably exactly where they should be. So digging into the, uh, the scenario you talk about in Europe Can Defend Itself, uh, you talk about a, a Russian conquest of Lithuania, part of Poland, uh, and you suggest that this would not be sufficient to bring the war to an end for Russia uh, and that Europe would continue to fight rather than accepting Russian gains. And I guess I would, I would ask kind of the, the inversion of that, which is, you know, we it, it's, it sure seems like that territory is hard to credibly fight over for the United States. But what about for Europe? It's, it, you know, they've, they've dealt with that territory being under Russian authority in the past. Would they really stay in the fight for this? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't actually matter what we think. It matters what they can get the Russians to think, right? The whole game is deterrence here, right? And what I laid out was a deterrent strategy for the Europeans, right? Now, the Euro Europeans, we didn't put a pistol to the Europeans' head and say, invite these countries into the European Union. Um, we did sort of muscle them to invite these countries into NATO. I, I mean, my own view is, you know, back in the day when, you know, before I entirely embraced restraint and I was more in the camp of some of my colleagues who call themselves selective engagers or deep engagers, I still didn't want to enlarge NATO. I thought it was a dumb idea, right? But they did it, right? Uh, um, so the, the European Union went ahead and did this on, on its own, right? And, and whatever security system they put together after we leave is is going to be one that, that that relies a lot on unity and cohesion. So while the geostrategic um, uh, utility of any, I, any of these three small states to us, to Russia, to the Europeans is low, the Euro Europe without us would be relying on the same kind of threat that Europe with us is relying on to defend these places, which is to say, if you attack them, our, you know, our, our honor is at stake, our credibility is at stake, all the usual arguments will get made, right? Uh, and in some ways, they'll be stronger if the Americans aren't there, because the Europeans will have no one to rely on but each other, right? So they're in the, what is the Ben Franklin, we better hang together or we'll surely hang apart. They're going to be in that situation, right? So uh, I, I, can, I can think of reasons why they would fight. 
but it's in their interest to try and convince the Russians that they'll fight. Just like in the Cold War, it was in our interest to convince the Russians we'd have a great big general war over Berlin. Berlin didn't matter to us. Berlin didn't matter in the greater strategic scheme of things. It was what it was made to be as a political symbol of a, you know, of a particular alliance, right? So that it's it's that's effectively what what defends the Baltics now. It's not actually our ability to deny, you know, the Russians a military success. I doubt that the Americans and the Europeans together could deny Russia an initial military success if they want one. The thing that deters the Russians is you're then in a war with the, the, the entire Atlantic Alliance. So then the question is, if the Russians are instead facing a war with the European Union plus Britain, is that scary to them? Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's up to the European Union to make it scary. It's not that hard to do. They've already, you know, they have most of the capabilities. There's lots of bits and pieces they need to fill in. I can see that. Their readiness problems, I can see that. But, you know, there are a lot of rich countries. They've been spending one and a half percent of their GDP on defense for a long time. They have been buying something. You can read the military balance and you can count the brigades, the ISS own publications, count the squadrons, count the this, count the that, count the ships. There's a lot of military power there. Right. And it's up to the Europeans to make it to make it relevant or not. Right. And, uh, um, uh, you know, they could go the other way. I can't I can't rule that out. Uh, but. Uh, if, if they want to create a credible defense, it's, I don't think it's a big reach for them. Thank you. Um, and I think that answers Tyler's question also. Um, so I'm going to go to Eugene Goltz. Which is <laughs> Get ready. It's a doozy. Um, he is our faculty advisor also at um, JQASND. So... Um, he says, it seems to be easier to get a political consensus in the U.S. to rein in the over-interventionist aspects of U.S. strategy to not do Iraq again. But it's been much harder to pare back the alliances. President Trump tried to pull back a few troops from Germany, and the outcome seems to have been to make the Democrats and the current administration more committed to the old alliances. Sure, Democrats complain about burden sharing, but how do you convince Americans that we can cut back from alliances or deal with the tendency of polarized American politics to just resist whatever the other party said? Is good military analysis key? Is it enough? What are the chinks in their narrative that alliances are great? <laughs> it's, it's a typical Eugene Gold's three-part questions with four uh, subparts and everything else. Um, thank you for the, the question, Gene. Uh, military analysis is never enough, right? The problem with this particular situation is that there wasn't enough military analysis, period. You forget whether, you know, military analysis is going to sway that it, there has to be some, right? And there was essentially nothing, right? The Europeans themselves don't produce very many independent military analysts, right? So the debate had to be has to be started here and in Europe about what the contours of the problem are and what the contours of Europe's ability are. I think the debate goes better in the United States if it doesn't look like abandonment of a bunch of helpless people to the Russian bear. And most Americans just don't know that the Europeans have a lot of capability. And most Europeans don't want to think about the problem. They want to just believe that the Americans are going to be there forever. So analysis is part of the argument. Military analysis is part of the argument. I hope people do more. I hope they do a lot more. Um, so 
that's just uh, you know that's just point one. Point two. Um, so so I wrote a book called Restraint. I lay out a fairly bold set of changes for the United States, but not you know I think if we're honest, one could un, under the same basic analytic framework argue for much bigger changes, right? But I think restraint and the military analysis that accompanies it may assist the debate inside the present grand strategy. And inside the present grand strategy the United States has, um, I think you can make an argument that uh, you're coming up to the edge of, of, of true resource constraints in the United States. And I don't mean that you know if there were a war, you couldn't mobilize 40% of the GDP and solve many problems. I don't mean if there were, weren't a panic, you couldn't mobilize 10% of the GDP and make yourself a lot more ferocious everywhere. I'm just saying in terms of the current, the, 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 the set of political currents we have in the United States today, right? Um, I think we're running up against some resource limits, right? And if you accept that, which is to say between the VA budget this year and the defense budget this year, we have a trillion dollars going to present and past military activity, a trillion. And the VA budget is going to continue to go up. And if you believe the, the, the partisans of the DOD, the DOD budget itself should be a trillion dollars. This is against the backdrop of a society that's pretty divided in which you know, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is getting stronger and wants things. We're borrowing a lot of money to fight this pandemic. It's entirely possible that there's a, there's a perception of scarcity will become politically um, salient in the United States again. If that's true, then you start looking around places where you can trim some activities, right? And I think restrainers are in a good position because they're, you know, they're iconoclasts to keep pointing and saying, even if you don't agree with me that those people can look after themselves, they sure can do a lot more within the structure of the transatlantic alliance as you love it. So if you don't like my grand strategy and the military policy of it, why don't you start figuring out a more efficient way to execute your grand strategy, given all the resources that are over there, right? Why don't you start thinking about division of labor, right? My very simple analysis does show you one thing. There's plenty of brigades and plenty of squadrons in Europe, right? Now, that means to me that the land portion of their security problem, they can deal with pretty well, and we should be specialists, right? We should share intelligence. We should provide the nuclear umbrella, whatever that means. We should control the North Atlantic, right? But everything in the core of this problem, they should do. They can do, they should do, right? We need the money for something else. And Europeans should understand that people like Eugene and myself and people with perhaps less analytically derived and more emotionally derived views than us towards Europe are standing in the wings. And the whole transatlantic relationship can get a lot worse if they don't pull up their socks and do the things that are necessary to defend the alliance on the assumption that we are not going to do all the things that we were doing. Pulling into that uh, that question of European uh, capabilities and resources a little more, 
one line of critique of uh, Europe can defend itself centers around coordination problems with those resources that Europe's military is is large, but it's distributed among a lot of different sovereign states, whereas Russia's is all under one state, you know, that there might be a, uh, a coordination problem, a tragedy of the commons. Um, and then, you know, critics like uh, Stephen Brooks, Hugo Meyer have suggested that there are several challenges with pooling power, uh, among them a strategic cacophony involving very different threat perceptions across Europe of what the main security threat even is. So what do you make of that line of argument? Um, well, there's nothing new to the insight that military coalitions have problems concerting resources, just like there's nothing new to the insight that individual military services actually within a country actually have problems cooperating one with the other. There are always these problems. The question is, what's the magnitude of the problem in Europe relative to Russia? It's certainly the case that the Russians are going to act as a unified actor. It's not even the Warsaw Pact anymore, right? Uh, you know, where they have a problem maybe in the West is that, you know, somehow, some way they probably need to use Belarusian territory and how cooperative will Belarus be? I don't think it would fight, but the question is how cooperative it would be. But the most of the burden of coordination problems are going to fall on the alliance. But this is not an alliance that was that is freshly fledged, right? Um, if you look at alliances across wars, you know, one, two, three, four years into the war, and here I commend a dissertation that has not been published by Kelly Grieco at MIT some years ago. Uh, the longer military coalitions are working together, the the the, the more well-oiled the wheels become, and uh, you know, it, it's. It depends a lot of it depends on sort of how much of of NATO's PR line are you willing to accept, right? These countries have been working together in a military coalition for what seventy years now. I think I went to the NATO at seventy birthday party last year. Seventy year long time to be working together in cooperation. Uh, if you can't open a book about NATO without seeing the list of all the multinational corps and multinational divisions and multi-ethnic national headquarters, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like they haven't been working on military coordination. Uh, as I say in my response to Brooks and Meyer, which just came out, um, you know, go look up the standardization agreements that NATO writes, right? There must be a thousand of them. They're little doctrine manuals. The only problem is we can't read them or they're all classified or not all of them. Many of them are classified, most interesting ones. Uh, you want to waste an hour of your life, go to a Stanag conference. I've been to two of them and they can be incredibly tedious, but it's a very interesting thing, right? And it's a real thing. And when I say a standardization, I mean, like, how to hunt a submarine, you know, how to refuel an F-16. I mean, this, I mean, this is, this is sort of standard doctrine for this stuff, so that these countries can, can work together, right? Um, you know, uh, command and control, well, this is a little bit mysterious. I made the same assumptions in my uh, piece that, uh, the ISS made in theirs, which is the Americans leave NATO. They don't take the telephones. They don't take the switchboards. Uh, what NATO would lose is, is access to the giant American intelligence system, right? Which they only got in a, you know, through the Americans in any case, because the Americans only truly share with five eyes, right? With the Anglo-Saxon countries. 
right? But if you look carefully at the Europeans, it's not like they have no independent intelligence capability in the satellite world, no independent comms in the satellite. They have all that. They have a GPS system, Galileo. I mean, you know, it's it, these people are not technologically helpless. Four of the top 10 arms producers companies in the world are European, right? So the whole idea that this is like this tabula rasa full of these naive, militarily, you know, ignorant people who don't know how to deal with each other is is wrong. Now, there is a question about the, you know, too many, you know, the sort of, well, is it, is, it, or is this like 20 or 30 or however many countries there are having a mental block, uh, all trying to each have their little select of military power? Look, anybody who has studied European NATO or studied the European Union knows that most of the military power comes from between four and seven countries, right? And the truth is that most of it comes from four, it comes from Italy, Britain, Germany, and France, right? And the fact is that Germany and France together, depending on how you count, outspend Russia on military power. Now, the Russians, the Brit Germans, for some reason, don't get much for their money, and no one can answer that mystery, right? But they spend a lot. Together, the two of them out-GDP Russia. Together, the two of them, I believe, have about the same population as Russia. I'm, I may be drawing a blank on that. I might be a little bit off on that figure. But the point is, just those two alone, if they coordinate their activity, make a formidable alliance. So yeah, it's true. When the EU acts, it takes forever. There's a lot of negotiation. NATO, they let everyone talk themselves out, then the Americans basically decide what to do. It will be a more complicated alliance to manage in the absence of the Americans. This is true. The question is whether or not this is fatal. And critics want to say that it's absolutely fatal. The Europeans who just desperate to keep the American guarantee want to say it's fatal. The Americans who love, for some reason, lording it over the Europeans, want to say it's fatal. I don't believe that it's fatal. And one of the problems we have in thinking this through is that you can go find all kinds of instances of Europeans behaving badly towards one another, but they do that under the umbrella of the Americans, right? When you have this massive insurance policy behind you, you can indulge your worst impulses, right? Take it out, and uh, I think many will be more serious. Not all, but many will be more serious. There's a final point here, which we should understand, which is many of the smaller European countries would much rather take orders from us than take orders from the Germans and the French. I can certainly understand that, but it's not my problem. Um, thank you. And we have a question from a Notre Dame student who is currently studying your work on the security dilemma with Dan Lindley. And he asks, in your opinion, if the U.S. pulled their troops from Germany and Eastern Europe, how do you think that would affect the severity of the security dilemma in the Balkans and the Baltic states? Can these minor states handle their own security without conflict? Well, the Baltics are too small to have a security dilemma with Russia. The essence of the security dilemma is things I do to defend myself threaten others because of the condition of anarchy, right? Because the basic story is that 
that all power is in some sense or another can be used for either offense or defense. Now, this is not quite true. Many people know there are other theories about this, but this is the basic idea. And the security dilemma article that I wrote was an article about the ethnic security dilemma in fissiparous countries, right? And, um, you know, the question arises in the Balkans, and I think this is where the question is more pertinent, is, uh, is whether the EU is going to try and cast a shadow in the Balkans and be the order keeper. And I think for all intents and purposes, it's the order keeper now. I don't think the Americans really have that much role in it. So I, I don't think it will change things all that much. You know, there's, you know, there is a problem there that the you know, Serbs will periodically flirt with the Russians and the Russians like to make mischief there and they, they have a tradition of, of making mischief there. So that creates some problems and, you know, Europeans will have to deal with that problem, right? It, it won't be straightforward. But um, I think the, the notion that the, you know, that uh, the, the parties spiral into another round of, of escalation and violence, I think, the, I think the EU can probably cast enough of a shadow to prevent that. But, you know, you're asking for fortune telling or future telling on an issue that's changed a bit since the last time I've looked at it, the local politics. I don't follow the Balkans anymore. So if someone could come and make the alternative argument to me, I might believe it. Uh, it wouldn't be dispositive for me as far as America changing its strategy, but it might change my view of how how difficult things might become in the Balkans again. To, to, to dig into uh, again the uh, Europe can defend itself paper and some of the some of the technical aspects of it, just a, a couple of questions. Uh, one is around with the uh, with the campaign analysis and in yours and IISS's since they're using the same methodology. Uh, it's it's talking a lot about force ratios that are kind of derived from fairly crowded battlefields where there's not a lot of open space, uh, and so those force ratios in theory can matter a great deal. Uh, but as you know, the battlefields today in Europe would be a lot less crowded. It's not necessarily going to be wall-to-wall divisions from, you know, one ocean down to down to the Swalky Gap. Uh, and so there could be some opportunities for maneuver warfare. Now, does that open up possibilities for, say, a smaller force to win a war uh, through some clever tactics, even though it has a disadvantage in the ratio? Um, and the, the second question I, I was poking around on Twitter to see how various scholars were reacting to, uh, to your paper, uh, Franz Stefan Gady of IISS argued in a Twitter post uh, that the piece neglects uh, what he, he says, uh, new and emerging warfighting dimensions like space and cyber, uh, improved precision strike capabilities, uh, you know, and NATO's logistical difficulties, and how any of those might tip the, uh, the military balance. So I'm curious what you'd re- how you'd react to those questions. Well, I, I talked about the first question in the piece. Um, uh, I, in fact, I, I believe that I have a a, uh, a better grounding in at least um, the source of the of the assumptions about theater wide force ratios than the ISS did. I, I at least bothered to show what the source was. Uh, they did not. Um, the um, I think the the observation that that warfare 
could look somewhat different. In fact, maybe quite different from how we've imagined it in the NATO Warsaw Pact context. I think it's a very good observation. I suggested in the piece uh, that some sympathy with, uh, I think, the position that some of the analysts of the Rand Corporation have taken that, um, that to try and address that, the next bit of analysis to do, and they've done some of it, is to try and devise war games that reflect that, that terrain and those kinds of force to space ratios. And, and then you have to play them iteratively with players who know and then see what happens over time. You'll have to play the game many times to figure out what's going to go on, what's going to happen. Um, now, the question then arises of, you know, is one side or the other particularly advantaged in that situation? And, and that's, that's kind of an interesting question. Um, uh, neither party has really waged anything like maneuver warfare uh, in recent years. So they'll both come to the party largely as novices. Um, so in some sense, it could go either way, right? You know, either of them could turn out for one reason or another to be somewhat better than better than the other at that kind of warfare. Now, one of the things that I liked about my scenario and counter to the ISS scenario, the ISS scenario basically says you lose Lithuania and parts of Northern Poland, and then you spin up this future force, this large force, quite quickly, and then you go into a counteroffensive. And, you know, my view of that was, well, that is a bit taxing, given that you haven't done this kind of work before. The Americans did something like this in Iraq and in uh, the first Gulf War, or our first Gulf War. The Gulfies really call it the second Gulf War. And then also again in our second Gulf War, the French had some a small role in deep attack. Uh, the British had a small role in deep attack in the first Gulf War, but the Americans were the ones who went deep and far. And then the second Gulf War, the British stayed down around Basra, right? So there isn't a lot of this maneuver warfare experience. And I'd rather not tax it. I'd rather sort of, you know, fill the terrain up, which as much force as I could, and basically make the Russians come for it, right? And if they don't come for it, basically squeeze them every way you can, right? And there's lots of ways to squeeze them, but that's also an analytic question. How many different ways can you squeeze them? Some good things happen when you do that, and that is, you know, as the ISS quite rightly assumes that if you're going to go on the counteroffensive in that terrain, mostly what you need is armored and mechanized units, and the Europeans have some. I think the ISS counted 22 brigades or something like that. But the Europeans have many more motorized infantry units. And they don't figure at all on the counteroffensive because they probably wouldn't be that good for that kind of action. But for defense, they're quite good. Uh, some analysts historically used to say that for defense in urban or forested areas, infantry units are as good as armored units. Right? Well, there's a lot of those that are available in Europe. And you can start laying them in the terrain in ways that really begin closing off or at least rendering complicated, you know, 
movement in certain areas and then bringing the battle into the open areas where you can concentrate your armor and you can concentrate your air power, right? So my view was, you know, first time out of the box, better to you know, walk and then run, uh, play the game this way and try and limit some of that free play possibility because you may not be ready for it. Now, the Russians may not be ready for it either, but we, we it's hard to know, right? Um, it, it just, you know, it's hard to know. Um, so that's the story on open country, right? And by the way, iterative wargaming is human capital intensive. So you got to design the game, but then, and, and it's not what I do. And then you got to get players and you got to play it many times to be good to get the feel for the. And then it's still judgment, right? You know, so you got to remember there's still judgment at the end of it. Uh, okay, so the second point is a bit different one. And, you know, that I would say is, well, the ISS didn't really deal with that issue either. And I'm entirely prepared to say, okay, fine. Uh, there are some new elements of warfare that uh, that would play in this situation. And uh, we need to ask whether Europe is up to snuff. And the people who read my article closely will see that I stay at the beginning, that we, we all know that European militaries have lacunae right now. We all know this. We don't know exactly what they are. We don't know their magnitudes. We have lots of anecdata, data, but no real data. NATO doesn't tell us much about what they really think the lacunae are. The EU doesn't tell us much. When I did this kind of work on the classified side 33, 40 years ago, I know that NATO had a force planning process that did do this. They decided what the shortfalls were. They measured states' progress towards dealing with individual specific shortfalls. What they do now, I do not know. What we have now is a lot of anecdata, right? And the anecdata is, you know, it's not happy, right? So we know that there's a lot on the readiness side. There's probably some on the sustainability side. Uh, so are these other issues lacuna? They might be, they might not. Um, as I said, you know, Europeans are not without intelligence assets. They're not without command and control. The non-Five Eyes countries turn out to have intelligence sharing arrangements among themselves that were buried for years. People didn't know about them. Uh, I think the Europeans have a lot of capability. As I said earlier, four of the top 10 defense companies in the world are European, according to business journals, not me, right? There's a lot of capacity there. The Europeans have things of this nature. They need to fix them up. Well, then fix them, right? Uh, you know, Brooks and Wolforth and their pieces, oh, it would take 20 years. I said, well, what you're really saying is they'll never do it. And the ISS on the quantity of materiel side on tanks and, and planes and guns, they, they say 10, 15, 20 years as well. In, in Europe, transatlantic analysis, this is just a way of saying never, right? Countries can do a lot in a short time if they have to, right? This is, All of these problems are not unknown to Europeans. All these technologies are not unknown to Europeans. If you want to tell me they'll have problems if the Americans leave tomorrow, if Donald Trump had had his day and basically said, look, you're leaving tomorrow. I'm the president. 
I'm not listening to you, General Mattis. Get the troops out tomorrow, right? We're not going to be doing this anymore. Do you think the Europeans would have gotten up the next day and said, oh, we're helpless. I guess we better surrender to the Russians. I, somehow, I don't think so. They had plenty of assets, and I think they'd have found a way. But it's not the best way to do this. The best way to do this is for the Americans to say, look, we're going to change this relationship over five or 10 years. In, in my book, I said 10 years. We're going to change this relationship. You have 10 years to sort yourselves out. And we're going to have milestones. Each year, we're going to be a little, there'll be a little less Americans, there'll be more you, right? I'd rather do it in 10 years than in 10 days. I think Europeans should rather do it in 10 years than 10 days, but Europeans would rather not do it at all. We have a question from Jack saying, you mentioned that your strategy would be to concentrate your defense and make the Russians come to you. The last time we saw large-scale maneuver warfare operations was World War II, which proved that static defense lines didn't work. Think Manigo line. Obviously, technologies have changed since then. So why do you think a defensive strategy would work now when it didn't work then? Well, because um, uh, for most of World War II, defense strategies worked very well. They just didn't work in 1940, right? And the problem was not that the Maginot Line failed, right? The problem was exactly as I stated it, uh, in terms of my fears of a counteroffensive operations, is that the French and British plan for defense in May of 1940 was vastly more ambitious than anything that they had prepared for or that they had trained for, right? If people understand what happened in the campaign in 1940, they will know that, that in the weeks before the campaign, the French and the British became ever more ambitious, moving their defense lines farther and farther, first into Belgium, and then deciding to mount a major military intervention into Southern Holland and Breda, right? And in the process of doing that, they committed a big chunk of their mobile and mechanized reserves which would have been exactly what you needed to deal with the German penetration through the Ardennes, right? So then the Germans had to go through the Ardennes to get around the Maginot Line. Now, I'm not suggesting a Maginot Line. I'm suggesting a mobile defense in depth, which is the classic way that you deal with armor defensives. This is not a Maginot Line. So if that's the impression I left, I, I, I misspoke. We have a question from, uh, from Steve Hooger, uh, who says, while others not go as far as restrainers in talking about pulling back from Europe, it is common for American leaders to raise concerns about burden sharing. Given this, why have American leaders resisted moves towards some form of EU military or equivalent independent military capacity? Uh, do you see this changing and might it become a bigger part of the argument for Europe to defend itself? Well, this is a this this is an, an important political military question. This is the really fundamental, right? And the United States wants the Europeans to do more, but they only want them to do more within the structure of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which the Americans dominate. We, we've been against European military autonomy, right? And, the, and, and you as taxpayers and as citizens should wonder why the American foreign policy establishment has been an unindicted co-conspirator in the infantilization of Europe as a security actor, right? Europeans want to remain dependent on us, and we, at least our elite, wants them to remain dependent on us. So the question you have to ask is, why does the American foreign policy establishment so like European security dependence? That's why we oppose the European Union. That's why we oppose autonomy. 
right? And that's the question that needs to be answered. And that question is, you know, it's it's both it's strategic, but it's also ideological in a way, right? And uh, the the United States wants to be the liberal hegemon. The American establishment likes to be the liberal hegemon. We want allies who are pliant and dependent. We want them to contribute something, but we want them to be pliant and dependent because the American foreign policy establishment believes that the, that the world is only safe, the United States is only safe if we have our arms around everything. No one else is actually capable of running their own affairs, right? And they, and they have accepted that the American taxpayer should be overtaxed to pay for that arrangement, right? That's what, that's, they accept that. Now, they don't like to say it publicly. They won't admit it. Every now and then you'll, you know, you'll hear one of them musing on the situation. And it basically turns out that they're happy to buy dependency. But they think it's just better for the United States and better for the world. And I just don't think it is. I think especially in a world where there are serious challenges out there, we're, we've produced a very fragile network, a very fragile web, right? And to go back to 1930s analogies, which everyone likes to take refuge in when they're critiquing any restraint position, right? What, what did the British think they were doing when they were promising to fight a major naval war in the Pacific, in the Mediterranean, and in the Atlantic at the same time when they knew darn well they could not do that? And that whichever place they fought first, that was the place that we could consume the resources and let it open a window in all the other places, right? And when push came to shove, they couldn't send a fleet to the Pacific to defend Australia or Singapore, any of those places, right? If I were a European, I'd be looking at the true draw of China on American military resources and asking myself the question, you know, even if the Americans say they're coming, want to come, we know what happens when the Americans are at war, whether it was Vietnam, which sucked up all the best ground forces in the U.S. Army, whether it's the Iraq War or Korean, whatever, it's, it's going to draw in all the best American forces. That's what it's going to do. And Putin, who's an opportunist, is going to say, ha ha, they, they put their trust in the United States. The Chinese have now sucked up all the resources of the American military. Now's the time to test this hypothesis that the Europeans are missing, have all these lacunae in their force structure that the Americans insisted that they maintain. And now the Americans are not there to fill them. Maybe this is our moment, right? If I were European, I wouldn't want to live that way. Why they want to live that way is beyond me. On our, um, our commitments to other countries, what explains the continued commitment to the Middle East? Is it um, strategic rationale? Is it inertia? habit. The United States doesn't really know how to unwind any commitments, regardless of whether or not the facts change, right? The facts are changing very quickly as far as oil is concerned, right? Much more quickly than anyone knows. I shouldn't say that that's mis misspeaking. It, it, I think it's the, the facts are changing more quickly than people expected. And you can see it in the torrent of announcements from major automobile companies about their plans to electrify their entire fleet, right? And how quickly they can do it. They're going to do it, how quickly they can do it, right? And the, the demand signal on that is, is largely on, on climate change, right? Oil is poison. 
You have to, you know, Americans sooner or later, uh, green Americans are going to come around to say, wait a second, we're, we're, we're protecting a low price for heroin. I mean, why, why would you do this right now? A lot of countries still need oil, and the Americans still need oil, and and you know there's still plenty of uses for it. But the game is changing quickly, and I think the 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 Gulf states, the petro states, know it, right? And I think it's and, and they know that our interest in this part of the world is going to wane, right? But it's only going to wane; it's not going to go away altogether, right? Um, now there are other things. You know, in, in the course of the decades we spent defending the place strategically, all kinds of ties grew up between us and the Gulf states, right? And those ties are hard to buy, break because some of the ties are commercial. A lot of the ties are in the arms industry, right? Which is, you know, we, we, like, we like selling weapons. Uh, um, the Arab states have been very adept at spreading money around to, to, to get, you know, to acquire friends. Um, the Iranians made a terrible blunder when they took the American embassy. It's the kind of thing Americans don't forget for several generations, right? So the Iranians are the enemy. We, you know, that's they're not they're not they're never gonna they're not gonna get a you know a positive response from the Americans for years to come because they're they they made themselves untrustworthy in the American public. So there's an adversary out there that the Arabs can point to, and the Americans go, yeah, yeah, they are. They're 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 pain in the neck. The Israelis have, play a big role in this. Uh, the Israelis are very adept politically in the United States. Uh, they're very skilled militarily. Um, the, the Gulf states have basically scratched their head and say, hmm, if the Americans are not so reliable and the Israelis are living here and they don't like the Iranians much because the Iranians stupidly have made enemies of the Israelis, the Iranians are driving the Israelis in the and the Gulf states together. And what the Gulf states can't persuade us of, maybe the Israelis can, right? So there's a lot of reasons why our presence in the Middle East is sticky, right? Just like oil is sticky. Um, but, uh, you know, that a lot of those are waning. Um, and I, I, I think that, you know, there's a, uh, there, there, there is a kind of aside from the oil issue. There's a kind of dawning reality, well, a dawning understanding of a what I would say is a reality, which is liberal democracy isn't coming to the Persian Gulf anytime soon, and the Americans have no tool to help it along. So there's no idealistic story about our presence in the Gulf. So there's no idealistic story. The strategic slash economic story is waning. Uh, the pull of China is there. Um, so I think there's going to be less, but it's, it's, it's a slow roll, you know, it's a slow roll, which I guess is what the questioner was observing when they asked the question. It is a slow roll. Well, that is unfortunately all the time we have. Thank you so much, Dr. Posen, for taking the time to chat with us uh, on this, uh, this great article. Uh, we have uh, some upcoming events. I dropped the links in the chat a couple of minutes ago, including next week, Thursday, with Eugene Goltz, who we briefly heard from tonight. Uh, but thank you again to everybody. Thank you to Notre Dame for co-hosting. Uh, and everybody have a great evening. Uh, stay safe. Stay healthy. Thank you all for your attention. This has been fun.